Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's a spate of recent studies that are all confirming, it seems, a common trend in our nation where people are more willing today to say, probably in the last 25 years, that they believe in God, that they're spiritual people, in some cases that they're even religious people. They all seem more willing than ever maybe to say such a thing, but at the same time, there's an equal decline in a willingness to identify with any sort of pattern or traditional group or denomination. That is to say, people want to be spiritual. They want to be known as spiritual. They want to be known maybe even as religious, but they don't want to be known as Catholic or Protestant or Baptist or Methodist or Episcopalian. They don't want to be known even as Christian or Jewish or Uh, Islamic or any of those things. They just want to be sort of blandly spiritual. As a matter of fact, those surveys that are taken often ask people to to put uh, their sort of affiliation along those lines. And the dominant affiliation now that is being marked on many of these surveys is none, which made one professor of religion quip that we've become a nation of nuns. Of course, in a different kind of sense, right? No, no, no affiliation whatsoever, but religious, but spiritual, uh, spiritual in the sense that they don't want to be defined. They don't want to be certainly dictated. They don't want it dictated, I say to them, anyone's particular pattern or definition of spirituality. They just want to sort of make it up as they go along. And it isn't just in the broader culture, even in the church, people are bringing all those kind of worldly assumptions personal assumptions to the table, and a lot of them, without even questioning those assumptions, are just sort of picking up along the way what it means to be spiritual. They get it from their friends, they get it from their own musings, they get it from their magazines and from their talk show hosts, they get it from whatever past experience may, may, may happen to them, and they import all that stuff into the church. They put all their effort then into becoming what they think this spiritual person is. Or, on the flip side, they spend a lot of time feeling really bad that they're not whatever their assumption is regarding spirituality. Well, today we want to talk about what it means to be spiritual. As a matter of fact, we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about this and particularly talking about the issue of spiritual gifts. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 are really all about. They are about what we traditionally call spiritual gifts. And the whole section is in response to a question, a question that had been put to the Apostle Paul. Now, if you've been with us throughout our study of the book of Corinthians, you know that the book was written in response to a letter that had been sent to him. And a a lot of the book is simply answers to questions that he has given or questions they had given him all the way back in chapter 7. Remember, this is sort of the, um, the opening line of response, I guess. Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then he gives a quotation from their letter, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
And then Paul goes on from there to answer or to rebut or to correct some of that bad thinking. And even over in chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols. Chapter 16, now concerning the collection of the saints. Again in chapter 16, now concerning our brother Apollos. They had written to him all of these issues and they wanted answers or they wanted explanation or clarification in all of them. And throughout the book, there are even other quotations. Uh, Much of the book is simply Paul responding to their questions. And that moniker, now concerning, is often the indicator that this is yet another question that Paul is responding to. This is exactly what we find here in chapter 12. Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Some of your Bibles have gifts in italics. Because the word isn't in the original Greek. It just simply says now concerning spirituals. A plural, uh, um, uh, plural participle there. Those who are spiritual, that which is spiritual. There's some debate about whether Paul is talking about spiritual gifts or spiritual people. I think it, to me it's pretty obvious that the context of chapters 12, 13, and 14 is talking about spiritual gifts. As a matter of fact, he uses the same word over in chapter 14, verse 1, when he talks about spiritual gifts in a very unambiguous way, making it clear he's not talking about spiritual people, he's talking about spiritual gifts. But I'm not so sure that the Corinthians would have even made such a sharp distinction in their mind. Because the reason, if they're asking about spiritual gifts, the reason they're asking about spiritual gifts It's because there were some people in the church using these gifts in order to set themselves up as spiritual people. In other words, they were trying to take a stand. They were trying to make themselves out to be something on the basis of certain manifestations and certain gifts and certain abilities that they had. So much so that in chapter 13, Paul will actually have to come back and say to them, look, even if you have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and have all faith so as to remove mountains, and you don't have love, you're nothing. In other words, it's sort of a slap in the face. You think you're something. You think that these gifts make you something. You think that prophecy makes you something. You think that knowledge makes you something. You think that this gift of faith makes you something. And you can just go down the list of all of the gifts that they were using. They were apparently using them in order to sort of take a stand to to present themselves as spiritual. So it is about spiritual gifts, but it's about spiritual people. It's about how do you define spirituality? How do you know a spiritual person? That's what Paul's going to try to address. That's what he's been addressing. You remember throughout the book, all the way back in chapter 3, he says, look, I cannot write to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. For, he says, because since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving like mere human beings? In other words, you call yourself spiritual, but, but behind the mask and behind the claim is this life of incongruency, this life of inconsistency, a life of strife and jealousy. And not only that, in chapter 4, they were boasting about how they were reigning as kings and they were conquerors and victories. And that was sort of their their mantra all the time. They were victors. They were conquerors. And Paul has to confront their pride and arrogance there. In chapter 5, they were boasting about how they tolerated sin, even in their midst. And Paul has to confront them. In chapter 8, they were saying, we all possess knowledge. And Paul says, yes, but knowledge puffs up. 
and love edifies. And so he has to confront them because they were boasting in their knowledge. In chapter 11, he has to confront them because they were humiliating other groups, other cliques, if you will, in the church whenever they were coming together for the Lord's table. All these things, despite, despite their, their boasting and pride and jealousy and divisiveness and all these things, they were still wanting to call themselves spiritual. And even in this chapter, apparently making some sort of stand on the fact that they had spiritual manifestations, passing themselves off as spiritual. It's not dissimilar to what you see in some circles today that we sometimes call the charismatic movement, a sense sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit, that if you don't have the same experience, the same manifestation that charismatics have, that somehow you're a second-class Christian. Or worse, somehow you are opposed to the Holy Spirit. That perhaps somewhere along the way you are hindered, you are quenching the Spirit because you're so ingrained in your modern, western, American, suburban, rational mentality that you're not really opening yourself to the Spirit, that you're not really freeing yourself to experience everything God wants you to experience, and so you're sort of dwelling at sort of a lower level, or even worse, in some publications and in some sermons Charismatics will explicitly say that if you're not experiencing the Spirit like they're experiencing the Spirit, it's because you have some open sin, some blatant sin in your life, which is preventing you from ascending to that kind of plane of spirituality. They're taking their stand and exalting themselves with these manifestations. It makes it difficult, of course, even I would say a sort of underlying intimidation factor to speak out against the charismatic movement lest you be labeled, first of all, unloving, but even more than that, unspiritual, anti-Holy Spirit. Lest you be labeled as someone who is so wrapped up with the world and modernism and rationality that you can't really dwell on a spiritual plane. Lest you open yourself up to someone who is against the Holy Spirit. To come out and to speak with any kind of criticism or to ask any kind of question is to open yourself up to being branded as the enemy of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we have to ask these questions because whenever we look beyond the surface of enthusiasm and euphoria of the charismatic movement, we're confronted with the, with the basic problem Are these people any more spiritual than anyone else? Has their experience and their enthusiasm and their euphoria led them to any real higher plane of spirituality? Is there more purity, more holiness behind the charismatic movement? Are their lives somehow a fuller expression of devotion to Christ? That is to say, are they more sincere in their worship, more consistent in their walk? Are they more motivated in their witness and faithful to it? Are charismatics necessarily uh, leading us by all of their prophecies and all their visions to more 
clear knowledge of God and of the Bible, have all of their supposed experiences somehow solve the mysteries that have plagued the church through all of time regarding things like divine election and the separation of amillennialists and premillennialists and postmillennialists? Have they somehow brought together all the despairing groups of, of theological camps or somehow brought together separated denominations? Have they solved thorny theological issues? Have they really advanced the cause of Christ? Have they produced more spiritual Christians? Well, in many cases, exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. There is just as much division. There is just as much confusion. There's left in the wake of so many in the charismatic and Pentecostal movements a people disillusioned, a people who are burnt out, a people who are somehow um, quenched in their own thirst for God because having tried what they thought was the peak of experience and not having really found anything of substance, they leave the faith altogether. I speak of this myself having been personally saved within a charismatic Bible study. When I first came to know Christ, that was my sphere of influence. I spent my first year or so in Christianity in that realm Those were my friends. Those are the ones who taught me the Bible. And I had to watch people one after one, one after the other, falling away from the faith. There was no higher spirituality that I could see. Nevertheless, people still continue to flock, going after these experiences, somehow hoping, somehow, somehow yearning, to have some greater experience of God, somehow wanting to be finally what they might perceive to be spiritual people. Well, this chapter and these three verses at the beginning really kind of take us to the heart of so much of this and address so much of the confusion, not only in the Corinthian church, but even in our own church about what is spiritual. What's a spiritual person? What's a spiritual gift? What is all this really supposed to look like? And how... How in the world uh, do these manifestations find their way into the church? And, and are they really of the Spirit of God? And really, really, should we be opening ourselves up to them? Paul's addressing all those things, and he's doing it in a series of three verses and connecting, if you will, some confusion with the Corinthian church to three factors in their life. And I think by observing these connections, we can be better equipped to discern spirituality, both true and false, in our own life. The first factor that Paul addresses here is the issue of their personal ignorance. He says it to them, responding to their question about spiritual gifts. He says in verse 1, I don't want you to be uninformed, or some translations say ignorant. I don't want you, people, who have so much emphasis on spiritual gifts. Look, I don't want you to continue on in your ignorance about spiritual gifts. It's really amazing here. Apparently, Paul was convinced that they must have had wrong ideas, superficial understanding, which made them vulnerable to all kinds of confusion because he wants to correct that. Probably even today, if you were to ask the average person who goes to a church about their understanding of spiritual gifts you might find the same woeful ignorance. You might find still 
a large number of people who are confused, who are uninformed, who are untaught, who are superficial, maybe, in their understanding. If you ask the typical person in the, the church today to explain to you spiritual gifts, you're going to get a blank stare and a change of subject. Or if you ask them specifically, what is your spiritual gift, you might get a ho-hum and a stutter. But very few people feel confident that they really understand and really know and really have surpassed or gone beyond a superficial level or a level even of ignorance when it comes to spiritual gifts. But Paul says it's God's will, it's His intent and His desire that you not stay there. He wanted the Corinthians and He wants you to not be uninformed, to not be ignorant. And the reason for that is because it's so vital to the body of Christ. We'll see that in the coming weeks as we unfold the rest of this chapter in 13 and 14, how, how God has put together in the church gifts and, and ministries as He sovereignly designs for the health of the body and for your personal sanctification. That is to say, the operation of the gifts in the corporate body of Christ are vital to your spiritual life as you interact with other believers ministering in their gifts. And so it behooves us to ask, do we understand everything that we need to understand about spiritual gifts? Apparently, the Corinthians didn't. For all of their boasting, for all their enthusiasm, for all their euphoria... For all their outward manifestation and even taking their stand, despite all of that hoopla, Paul says they still didn't understand some basic things. We know what they didn't understand because of what Paul will go on to address. Many of the issues here are issues that we need to know. We need to know what, how, how many gifts are there? What do these gifts look like? How do these gifts relate to personal natural abilities that we have? How can a person know what his gift is? What are the gifts designed to accomplish? How's the church different for having them? Is it important if we do? How's my life impacted if I don't operate in my spiritual gift? Are they temporary, these gifts, or are they intended to be something we have for the rest of our life? And if we have them for the rest of our life, are we supposed to progress in them? Should there be greater manifestations in our life now than there was 10 years ago? And how does all this relate to the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we hear so much about? What does that have to do with spiritual gifts? And can gifts, can we, how can we really know that something is a true gift? And how can we really know that something is counterfeit? How can we know what a genuine spiritual gift is? All those questions, Paul wants you to know. He wants you to be able to answer. And he's going to help us with those answers in the coming weeks as we go through the rest of this chapter. It's important for us to discern not only true spiritual gifts, but true spirituality as it's manifested in those gifts in the lives of people. And so his teaching is critical, this section for the life of the church. Not only that, but you'll notice in verse 2, Paul also connects some confusion they have, not only to their personal ignorance of the issue of spiritual gifts, but secondly, to their mystical background. Their mystical background. He reminds them in verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols or by mute idols, however you were led. This is a reference back to the fact that most of the Corinthians 
had come out of pagan mystery religions. We've already seen this looking back in chapters 8 through 10, how this was pervasive in their culture. It was, it was as pervasive in their culture as something, say, like the entertainment industry is in ours. It was difficult not to be touched by it. Pagan idolatry seemed so distant to us, but it was, it was infused into their culture. And consequently, Paul says, because of that, you were, many of you, led away or led astray by mute idols. There have been some who have attempted recently to suggest that what Paul's referring to here are those occasional festivals in pagan cultures where where these believers might, excuse me, these, these, these Gentiles might join in a parade or a procession going up to the temple, up to the pantheon in order to worship the gods. But, but the language really doesn't support that. Really what he's talking about here isn't some act of choice, some act of participation, as much as it is a captive and passive uh, uh, experience led astray. It's a word that's used to speak about leading an animal around by reins. Or more to the point, when it speaks about human beings, it's used to speak of leading them away to prison or to execution. In other words, the image is someone who's a captive, someone who's being carried along, not according to their will, but even apart from and against their will. And Paul's implication is that in their past experiences, they had given themselves over to this experience where they were led away, apart from themselves, I should say, led away by some power, some influence in their pagan religion. Remember, even back in chapter 10, verses 19 through 21, Paul had made clear to them that when they offer some sacrifice to these pagan idols, they're offering it to demons. So there might have even been some demonic influence in the, in the pagan rituals that they participated in. But their worship, their experience in all of these cults was chaotic. It was chaotic. It was in many cases irrational. It was, it was defined and characterized by frenzied chants, whirling dances, inhaling fragrant incense, rousing music, and other physical and psychological stimuli. And you don't have to search far to find the evidence for all of these things. You could go and read Euripides' play, The Bacchae, and he defines in detail some of the rituals that had overtaken the culture, whether it's in the cult of the Sibyllines or the cult of Dionysius, who was the god of of drunkenness and Strabo talks about how the dancers would come down from the temple playing loud clanging cymbals and double reed instruments which he found annoying and they were whirling about in their dance and chanting what could not be intelligible to the human ear or more to the point there is the cult of Apollo which if you go to Corinth today I understand one of the main monuments, one of the main ruins that you'll see is the temple of Apollo that stood at the top of the hill above the city. And this was, this was core to their city. Apollo is the god of healing, of oracles, and of prophecy. People would go to worship Apollo so that they could experience healing and oracles and prophecy. And this is what they do. Similar to the 
Dionysian cult, similar to the Sibylline cult. The worshipers would go work themselves into a state of enthusiasm and euphoria so that their mind would go into neutral and their, and their emotions would take over. The Dionysians believed that just like squeezing the, 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 the juice from a grape in order to get the, the byproduct of wine, your spirit needed to be separated from your physical body in order for you to touch God or experience God. And so the whole intent of everything they do was to rise above the normal, to rise above the experiences, to rise above the material, and to have some sort of outer body experience, something that would raise you above normal consciousness into the abnormal. In other words, this ecstatic frenzy that they were all seeking supposedly would free them from the entrapments of this physical world and allow them to commune on some higher level of spirituality. Now, the parallels in our culture are obvious. In fact, it was interesting. I was researching these cults this week and surprised to see a movement to re-resurrect, I should say, the cult of Dionysius. There are people who are promoting the worship experiences of the Dionysian cult in our culture today. Among them, I guess you should say, one of the main founders of this resurrection movement was Friedrich Nietzsche, who himself called for people to to experience this sort of ecstatic and outer body experience and and called on people to sort of lose themselves from their rationalism and to be launched into some outer state of being. But even if it's not just those specific attempts, you have all around us resurrection and Hindu forms of yoga and Buddhists who are trying to escape to nirvana and people who are wanting to to dive into some sort of divine nothingness, all self-styled spirituality, a state where people can see things and experience things that they don't experience on a normal and, and everyday basis. Well, when you understand all this, it's easy to see why the Corinthians would fall back into that pattern. If this is the way that they define spirituality, if this is where they had sought prophecy and healing and oracles, it's not hard to see why they might fall back into that. And Paul's reminding them, this is where you came from. This is the way you used to be led. This is the way that you used to be led astray. You were captive. You were carried along. Whether it was the Sibylline cult, the Dionysian cult, the Apollon cult, And despite the feeling, despite the enthusiasm, the emotion, Paul says you need to be aware that this is not, this is not the way that we define spirituality. A good feeling doesn't mean that it's from God. A sense of euphoria is not necessarily the earmark of spirituality. In fact, Paul takes them to what the real earmark of spirituality is. He talks about their personal ignorance or mystical background. But thirdly, I want you to see he talks about their doctrinal confusion. He says, therefore, in verse 3, 
Because of this background that you have, because of this ignorance that you have, therefore, I want you to understand. The word can be translated, I want to make known something to you. It, it could be almost, almost sarcastic. Hey, I want to let you in on some deep secret. I want to let you in on a spiritual mystery. I want to let you know something. I want to reveal something to you. Nobody says, by the Spirit of God, Jesus is accursed. Whoa! That's a bombshell. I mean, how in the world did they miss that? I mean, that's no deep secret. It shouldn't be any deep secret. That's no mystery that needs to be revealed, right? Who in the world would ever imagine that someone would stand in a a so-called Christian setting, a Christian congregation, a Christian pulpit, and publicly proclaim that Jesus is accursed? Why in the world would Paul even need to say this? Well, because apparently somebody said it in Corinth. Somebody in the church, in one of these fits of ecstasy, stands up and declares that Jesus is accursed. And the church didn't even know whether it was from God or not. It's amazing that someone can get to that point in their understanding of spirituality and spiritual gifts or whatever, but they can get to that point so that they tolerate something like that. I guess it's amazing. It's, it happens today. I mean, you got Benny Hinn who stands up and says, Ladies and gentlemen, the serpent is a symbol of Satan. Jesus Christ knew the only way he could stop Satan is by becoming one nature with him. It was sin that made Satan. Jesus said, I'll be sin. I'll go to the lowest place. I'll go to the origin of it. I won't just take part in it. I'll be the totality of it. When Jesus became sin, sir, he took it from A to Z and said, no more. Think about this. He became flesh that flesh might become like him. He became death so that dying man can live. He became sin so that sinners can be righteous in him. He became one with the nature of Satan. End quote. How in the world could anyone ever imagine that such a word is from God? Or Kenneth Copeland, I was shocked when I found out the biggest failure in the Bible and who it actually is. The biggest one in the whole Bible is God. He never said he's a failure. You're not a failure till you say you're one, but he is. God is a failure. Joyce Meyer says Jesus Christ on the cross couldn't, quote, couldn't do nothing for himself anymore. He had become sin. He was no longer the son of God. And people listen to this. And they think that this is from the Spirit of God. And it happens all the time around us. People standing up in some sort of euphoria, some sort of state, and if they say it with enough enthusiasm, and if they say it with enough authority, people just assume that this must be from God. That Jesus has one nature with God. That Jesus is somehow no longer the Son of God. That God is a failure. All these blasphemous statements. You hear these things and you just wonder, how in the world, how could a group of people, how could a church or a congregation or whatever, how could they get to the point where they would accept such statements as something that is from the Spirit of God? Well, it's pretty obvious, it seems, how they get there. It's because they were judging whatever was taking place based on experience. The level of excitement 
the level of enthusiasm, the level of ecstasy. Even if it's, the, the, the more mindless it is, the more spiritual it must be. One, one uh, well-known uh, charismatic preacher recently went into a state of frenzy on the stage and spouted off a number of prophecies only to come back a few minutes later and with wide eyes looking at his, his audience and saying, what did I just say? I have no idea. Someone tell me. This is presented as spiritual. This is presented as, a, as ascending to the heights. And people just take it in. Paul says, look, you were once carried away in sort of these mindless, ecstatic experiences, but it's not supposed to be true now. Apparently, they were bringing these old patterns into the church and letting these, these patterns and letting these, these whatever, in some cases, maybe even letting demons invade the church in the form of spiritual gifts. Unable now to discern blasphemy and untruth when they hear it. They were so eager for a supernatural experience, they failed to any longer distinguish between what's the true work of God and what is a, a work of chaos and a work of destruction and a work of blasphemy. This all probably came in the broader context of some other doctrinal deviation. It almost always does. People believe, especially based on 1 Corinthians 15, when the church apparently had those within it who were denying the physical resurrection of Christ. There was apparently a group of dualists in the, in the congregation. That is to say they had a dualistic philosophy where material things were necessarily evil and bad and spiritual things were good and so perhaps somewhere along the way these people were trying to to couch their teaching in the idea that the physical Jesus was somehow accursed but the spiritual Jesus wasn't but regardless of whatever it was in the form that it was presented really doesn't matter it was blasphemous And so Paul says that should never happen. Truth is not discerned by your personal feeling. Truth, worship, spirituality is not known by your personal feelings. You don't decide whether something is true, whether something is spiritual, whether something is of God based on how it made you feel that morning or that day. You don't decide where you go to church. You don't decide what teaching you place yourself under based on the way that it makes you feel or the sense of enthusiasm that you leave with. You don't decide truth based on feeling. How do you decide it? You decide truth based on doctrinal clarity. And faithfulness. This is exactly where Paul takes them. He he counters their statement and says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That is to say, Paul is simply giving them a doctrinal test. It's not the only doctrinal test, but he's telling them, Look, you want to know whether or not this person is spiritual? You want to know whether or not they have the Holy Spirit? Govern, or I should say, judge them, measure them based on whether or not they're speaking truth according to the Scriptures. This is, a, of course, 
not the only test that you could use. Many people can mouth the words, Jesus is Lord, and be insincere in their heart. Many, we're told, will come to Jesus on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do many wonderful works in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So the issue, don't get hung up on just simple, the, the three simple words, Jesus is Lord. Understand the contrast that Paul is making. The contrast that he's making here is, is doctrinal clarity about Jesus Christ. Doctrinal clarity. He's not accursed. He is Lord of heaven and of earth. He's Lord of you and of every man. And this affirmation of truth needs to be the guiding principle for these Corinthians to judge whether or not what, what, what these people are saying is true. Are they affirming truth? Or if you want to look at it in another sense, you can go to 1 John chapter 2, because John gives a very similar criteria He says in verse 22 of 1 John 2, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one one who denies the Son has a Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. He's saying, look, this this is what you need to do. You need to... Judge, you need to measure, you need to scrutinize what you hear based on what you heard from the beginning. That is to say, apostolic teaching. Teaching that came down to us from the apostles, which for us, of course, today is embodied in the New Testament. You don't judge it based on some new teaching. You don't judge it based on your own sense and vision. You don't judge it based on your own experience. You don't judge it. You judge it based on what's been brought down to you from the beginning. You judge it based on truth. Based on the gospel. This is the true test. This is the judge of spirituality. This is how you know if you can experience God. This is how you know whether or not you're a spiritual person. Do you know? Do you confess? And do you believe the truth? Some of you here have been seeking spirituality. Some of you have been wanting to experience God. Some of you have been wondering whether or not you're a spiritual person and how to be a spiritual person. You see on the TV people who are hooping and hollering. You see people maybe in your own life who seem to have some enthusiasm. You see all these things out there and you wonder maybe why you don't have those same sorts of things. Well, let me tell you today, if you want to be a spiritual person, if you want to experience spirituality this is how you do it you believe the truth and this is the truth jesus christ is lord jesus christ is lord he's the lord of heaven and earth he is god incarnate he said of himself that before creation he existed he told us that he and the father are one he told us he has the power of life and death he's god That's truth. And the way that you know God is by confessing that truth. That is to say, embracing that truth, believing it in your heart, and yielding your life to it. It's not about some experience. It's not about some euphoria. It's about recognizing your waywardness from God, recognizing that you've been estranged from Him, recognizing that no matter what your experience has been in the past, until you come to that place of confession, 
In other words, until you know Christ in truth, you won't know God. You won't know spirituality. You won't be a spiritual person. You won't know eternity if you don't know this truth. Our exhortation to you today is if God has brought you here, and if you've been wondering, if you've been longing to know spirituality, if you wanted something that would raise you above the material world that seems to drain you and trap you, if you want to know what it is to be spiritual, this is spiritual. It's to know the truth of God. We're here today. We'd love to be able to show you how this truth can transform your life. And I want to challenge you when we close in a word of prayer here in a moment. We don't have an altar call, but there's an invitation. The invitation is that you would respond, that you'd find me, one of our elders after church, and let us open up to you the scripture so that you can know how to have spiritual, eternal life. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful this morning for truth. Thankful for the Holy Spirit that has given us truth. He has revealed it and inspired writers to record it. He's given it to us on the pages of the New Testament and now illumines hearts to understand it. It is He who brings the conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It is He who regenerates hearts and makes us new creatures in Christ. Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit to have His work today, that He would draw hearts to Himself. And for those of us who know You, Lord, I pray that we would know You by Your Word. I pray that we would understand and no longer be uninformed, that we would have a sound mind to understand spirituality and the gifts of the Spirit, that we would know how to minister within them, that we would understand exactly what your purpose is for them. Help us, Lord, both today and in the coming weeks to learn, to grow, to advance, so that we can glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.